You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnis. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us as always from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm feeling good. How are you? Yeah. Good. Are you ready to do this MMA podcast thing? Man, you know I'm do? ready. How dare you even ask me that? That's true. It was, a stupid, it was a stupid question. Um, you know, Ben, before we start, we need to give the last warning to listeners out there that tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, July 16th at noon... Mountain Standard Time and the One True Time Zone is the deadline for the Co-Main Event Podcast Music Contest. Which is just heated right the fuck up, if I'm not mistaken. I know. There was a little trash talk on the internets today. Uh, I assume that Jay-Z is probably waiting till right before the deadline to put the finishing touches on his submission. Yeah. I mean, he and he's an attention hog. You know, That's true. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably going to give it out free to a bunch of Samsung users yeah. or something before it. Uh, reminder about prizes on the line here. First prize, huge-ass collection of UFC DVDs, still in the original packaging. Uh, other prizes include, but are not limited to, uh, I'm told we're getting signed Invicta posters. Haven't got that yet. We also have... So that seems theoretical at this yeah, point. Yeah, but we do physically have our hands on uh, a Benson Henderson uh, painting okay. of sorts. Are we Remember? giving that out for the music contest? Well, I'm not going to put it up in my wall. I was wondering if we were going to save it for the White Elephant Essay Contest because to continue the tradition of giving out an awesome painting as the as the grand prize for the essay contest. Well, you know what? I'm going to put our faith in the universe here and say another awesome painting will probably find its way to us Good by point. then. Good point. Uh, I don't believe in saving stuff. Plus, i got to get rid of some of this crap. It's cluttering up my office. Uh, also, I have a couple uh, comic books, a MMA-themed comic book written by uh, Blair Butler, who's a comic book person. Uh, this, she wrote this MMA comic book, uh, called Heart. I believe it's called Heart. I could be totally wrong about that. I'm pretty sure it's called Heart. Uh, and I have a couple of those. So, uh, those will also go out. A lot yeah. of shit on the line. Here. Yeah. I've got a, uh, a, a copy of UFC Personal Trainer, the video game, still in its original packaging. Wow. You haven't already unwrapped that well, and got I, right after I'm it? I'm in such impeccable shape to begin with. I didn't think that the video game could help me much. It's true. You don't want anything messing with your program. Yeah. That's I know, true. I know you're pretty strict about pretty it. Pretty Trump tight with my program. Yeah. Anyway, Ben, this week's music comes to us from podcast listener Courtney Jensen and his project Autopilot Dojo. And if you like what you hear, you can find more of his music at, get this, autopilotdojo.com. No way. Yeah. As usual, though, the rest of the co-main event podcast this week comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, so I guess Anthony Pettis is that young, talented, good-looking, hard-working guy who everything just always seems to work out for, huh? Real nice, Anthony. Everybody loves that guy. <laughs> And in round number two, Brian Stan put on a clinic for how to retire from MMA last week. Here's hoping that at least some of his peers took notes. Maybe some of them names rhyme with Briss Breben. I have no idea what you're saying right now. And in round number three, Anderson Silva is the greatest of all time, so I guess we should probably take his word for it when he says, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Trust me, guys. I don't know. How is that? That's the best I could probably That's not do. bad. It's better than Sir Nigel's Bisping. Well, everything Which is, is better the baseline than that. level. See, this is when we need Tommy Toehold yeah. to come to the show 
and impart us with some impressions. And do his Nate Diaz voice, which yeah, is pretty which is pretty awesome. Hilarious. Who knew that a tiny bird lived inside Anderson Silva? Anyway, <laughs> uh, in terms of the now-signed rematch with Chris Weidman in December, what the hell does it even mean that he's back? He's back. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Gustavo Perez. He writes, after watching Cyborg dismantle another opponent yet again, do you feel the UFC is not interested in making the Ronda fight anytime soon to protect their golden egg? Now, see, aside from asking a question, Gustavo Perez, I assume it was on purpose, managed to uh, hit all of my pet peeves for how to ask a question to the co-main event podcast. Really? This question is the one you're going to take issue with? Because Ex- it's succinct, man. Except that it's short. Okay. The best thing that happened here is it's short, but, you know, it should be It's Golden Egg, and he doesn't refer to Ronda Rousey by her full name. So, oh, there you go. Oh, come on. That's... Hey, you're asking for too much. No, I know. I'm just joking. It's a good question. That's why we it included it in the, in the podcast. And I guess at this point... First of all, did you watch Invicta? I, I watched the high points, yeah. So you waited until like the videos were out the next yeah, day? Yeah, of course. Just it. like everybody else. I paid the $15 and watched it, my man. Well, that's because you, sir, are earning that Ben Folk's money. Also, when I went to order it uh, and I go to the Dish Network website, and of course I got to see what nude events are available just because I'm already there. Nude on the, events? On the pay-per-view page. Yeah. Um, actual title of a nude event porn movie they're showing for like five bucks pay-per-view on Dish Network. Really pretty nude girls. I mean, you're not even fucking trying at that point. Whoever's coming up with that title. Come on. It's only five bucks, huh? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> anyway, That's what I took away from this. I watched Invicta. Yes, Cyborg Santos demolished Merlos Kunin very much like their first meeting. Not at all surprising, uh, I would think. Your, your thoughts on that, first of all? Yeah, Cyborg continues, even now that we assume that she's clean, to just fight with the ferocity that... that really sets her apart in all of women's MMA. Like she just unleashed some wicked ground and pound on uh, Marluce Kunin uh, and stopped her, I believe, right before the end of the fourth round. And seemed never at any point concerned about anything Marluce Kunin might be about to do to her. Yeah. Never. And just uh, uh, ferocious, I guess, is the only word I can think of to describe it. Now, in terms of the question, though, I would think that the UFC would be uh, – Super interested in making a Ronda Rousey cyborg. I guess it's not Cyborg Santos anymore. Is it Cyborg Justino? Yeah, that doesn't have the same ring, does no, it? No, it does. You lose the alliteration when you go with with that. But I think that they do want that fight. The UFC wants that fight, um, but not yet. I think that probably they're, the UFC is justified in thinking, well... You know, you can do that Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate rematch, and then if Ronda wins that, then you probably can do that Kat Zingano fight that you're supposed to do in the first place. And then, you know, if everybody's still where they are now at the end of all that, then you go ahead and see if you can make that Rousey cyborg fight. Yeah, which is a pretty big if in this in this sport, as we all learn on a day to day basis. Uh, I don't know if you caught the weigh in, but Cyborg had to go full towel like all the way up above her head to even hit uh, 145 on this fight. So, so you're you saying know, you don't think 135 is a possibility? Well, no, I guess I'm not really. I mean, uh, she has always claimed that it wasn't a possibility without doing some sort of... Doctor's uh, note. Yeah, terrible uh, medical problem. Some, And we've always kind of called bullshit on that. But like, man, if you if you can't even make 145 without going full towel... 
uh, I question your ability to get to 135. And I don't think the UFC would want Rousey to go up to 145, although kind of a no-lose situation for her if she does do that. Well, and I think that eventually... Unless she values the structure of her face. I think I consider that there's something to lose in there. Uh, I think eventually you're going to get to the point where if Ronda Rousey maintains this current trajectory of dominance, where there's just going to be no big money fights left for her. Uh, you know, you think you, you got Misha Tate, that rematch... Uh, Kat Zingano, maybe Sarah McMahon somewhere down the line. After that, I think you start to run out of 135ers that you can really sell a, a big fight with Ronda Rousey against. And I think that the temptation to move up and, and take that, you know, it's, if they can get it in in 2013, year of the super fight. That would be nice. That yeah. would be nice. If we could get one super fight out of this year, <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. I think eventually, if unless somebody, you know, loses or retires or goes off to do movies, or, you know, which can always happen. Uh, I think that fight happens eventually. Yeah, and to just put a little bit more of a point on it to Gustavo Perez's question, I don't think the UFC wants to protect Ronda Rousey. I don't get that feeling from them. I get the feeling that they uh, honestly believe in her ability to beat anyone on the planet, regardless of whether or not that may or may not be true. Yeah, I think they might going to have to talk her into going up and wait to fight Cyborg Justino if, if, they, if it goes that way. Second question this week comes from John Finelli. He writes, is it me or is it that 85% of all questions asked during both pre and post fight press conferences lack any sense of thought, intelligence, insight, ingenuity, and or significance as educated folk. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, quote, there's no such thing as a stupid question. End quote. When it comes to the MMA media, however, I beg to differ as a fan that loves the atmosphere of fight week and the build up to a big event. There are only so many times I can listen to a reporter ask Dana White when slash if if the UFC will visit a certain geographical geographical location or what the chances are that MMA will be legalized in New York. Like the sport itself, I realize that the coverage of MMA is still relatively young and continues to, inv- to evolve. In fact, many aspects of, M- of the MMA media, such as the online presence, access to fighters and promoters and interaction with fans are much more advanced than in those of other ma- more mainstream sports. However, I hope that more MMA reporters learn to advance the interests of fans by asking smart and thoughtful questions that elicit provoking responses there's a a hundred different ways i could go with this question uh to open up i just want to say that that the actual uh well let me agree first of all with the with the with the broad point that uh you will almost never glean any sort of real interesting information from a press conference or an open workout or any other company approved media event, because that's why they exist. They are specifically designed to uh, be incredibly easy to control and, uh, and to create an atmosphere where everyone is just going to give you their prepared answers. And that's it. If they didn't work that way, they wouldn't exist anymore. And I mean that uh, worldwide, not just in MMA. I mean that in every possible industry that holds press conferences, that's why they do it. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that I almost never watch them, even well, in even in MMA, unless something interesting happens. I usually just avoid it because all you're going to do is get this uh, this company line. And and and. But specifically to John Finelli's question, let me also point out, though, just as a as a sort of dissenting fact, that uh, 
the people who ask these questions that he specifically points out here, like when will the UFC visit a geographical location or when will MMA be legalized in New York, et cetera, et cetera, usually not asked by what I would consider to be the quote unquote MMA media. Usually it's yeah. like a local uh, uh, radio reporter, radio host guy who, who got credentialed and shows up. Those are the dudes that ask, well, when is the UFC coming back to Dallas? Those are a couple things you have to understand about like those press conferences, especially for one thing, all the stuff Chad said. For another thing, that dude who, you know, he sent by a, like a local newspaper or like local radio station to an event in Las Vegas, he kind of has to ask that uh, because he has to be able to say to his boss that he asked it. And that, you know, if there's a, a sound bite that comes out of it, if it's Dana White saying, oh, yeah, definitely, we're definitely going to Dallas. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do Cowboys. You know, he has to get that. Uh, in order for the people who paid to send him to feel like he did something that they can use for their local market. So, and, and that happens in a lot of different ways in press conferences where sometimes you're asking a question in a press conference, not because you don't know the answer, but because you think you know what answer you're going to get and you need that answer in that person's words. So, because you know, it's going to do good traffic on, on the internet. That kind of stuff happens a lot. Also, the thing with press conferences is if we have something really good that we want to ask Dana White, Probably not going to ask it in the press conference because you know he's going to do that media scrum where he sits down at the same press conference table uh, right after it's over and, and talks with everybody. If you put it out there on the press conference where there's a stream that's just going straight out to everybody, it's not as good uh, a link bait when you then write it up and put it on your website. I mean, in general, that's the thing that everybody hates about the press conferences. If you have something really good to ask that you think might be a really interesting topic of conversation, you don't want to ask it in front of all these fucking reporters because they're just going to take your shit. Right. Like if you know or have a reason to think that you're going to get a chance to talk to that guy later in a smaller setting or one-on-one, -on -one, you want to save it for that. And that's why press conferences kind of suck from a media perspective. Right. God, it makes me wince when I hear you talk about what's going to create web traffic and what's going to be lin link bait. Ugh. Old man Dundas just doesn't, dirty, doesn't understand man. the way... Oh, I understand New it. media works. I understand it to the point that I know that it's bullshit. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I would have felt better about – and even though I agree with, with the broad point that John is trying to make here, I would have felt better if he would have provided some – some examples of what he thought better questions would be because See, thing. after you go to a couple of press conferences, and again, I also mean this in every sport. If I mean, I've been to college football press conferences, professional baseball press conferences, et cetera, et cetera. They're all terrible, man. <laughs> and like after you go to a few of them, you realize, well, like what is a good question? Like what and what question isn't being asked that you would like to to hear to hear asked? You know, when when Vanderlei Silva goes out and knocks out Rich Franklin or something like what's the super interesting question that no one has thought of to ask those guys that suddenly is going to make everybody be like, Oh wow. You just blew my fucking mind with your question to Rich Franklin about getting knocked out by Vanderlei Silva. Yeah. And the point is not to try and like impress everybody with your question is to try to get like, an illuminating answer or, you know, an answer. And a lot of times I think that that's people not go even the point, like for most press conferences, the point is to get the shit you need to write your story. Yeah. And see, that's the thing is a lot of times people, when they're sitting down there at the press conferences, they already know, here are the stories I'm looking at. Uh, and so here are the, you know, the quotes that I'm going to need for these stories. And so they're trying to get those, uh, especially a lot of the guys who in, are in the MMA press conferences, they have to go back to the hotel room after this and spend all night like writing four or five, six stories and then jumping on a plane at 6 a.m. So they're just trying to like boom, 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 get exactly what they need and get out of there. Also, you got to keep in mind that most of the time the way like the UFC just clockwork fight week schedule works 
Uh, by the time we get to the press conference, we talked to those guys since Wednesday. I mean, not me, because now I'm I'm on the sweet ass schedule where I fly in on Friday and I'm out on Sunday morning and it you're fucking an rocks. Asshole. But if you're doing the whole fight week thing, you know you're you're there for media events that start on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, then fights, and then the press conference after it. So it's not as if you haven't heard from these guys yet already. You know, everybody gets they can only sit down here and churn out quotes for so long. All right, next question this week comes from Brian Dermody. Uh, he writes... It's our boy, Brian Dermody. Friend of the podcast, Brian Dermody. He writes, as your listeners are no doubt aware, MMA borrows all manner of promotional tactics from the pro wrestling playbook. Maybe we should pause here to note that Brian Dermody might be the world's biggest pro wrestling fan. That's right. Uh, I say it's time for one more. For generations, wrestlers who were skilled but uncharismatic were given a mouthpiece to get across the verbal parts of the narrative for them. Uh, who would Sabu have been without Bill Alfonso? Uh, I think you can tell that Brian Dermody is a big pro wrestling yeah, fan. That yeah, he goes, it comes across he, he goes ECW reference <laughs> as his first example. Uh, who would Big John Studd have been without Bobby the Brain Heenan or Mean Mark Callis without Paulie Dangerously? I like Chris Weidman, and I want him to be seen as fans as not seen by fans as not just a damn good fighter, but a guy people want to watch. But he's got a charisma problem. I say the UFC should turn him into Yokozuna. Yokozuna, you'll recall, was long paired with Mr. Fuji, a character best described as, quote, a horribly racist portrayal of a Japanese guy, end quote. But Fuji and Yokozuna were later joined by Jim Cornette, who was awesome in that he was opinionated and never shut up. Weidman needs a Fuji and a Cornette to do his talking. But where could we find a deceptively wise, if inscrutable, ethnic stereotype or an MMA lifer who can never stop? Stop running his mouth. I see where this is going. Let Matt, Sarah, and Ray Longo do all of Weidman's talking. Boom. I mean, all of it, yay or nay. <laughs> yay. So very much yay. Wouldn't this be awesome? If Chris Weidman just stands there, just mean mugging and glowering at, silently at the camera while Matt, Sarah, and Ray Longo are jumping up and down on either side of him, uh, shouting about how this is the man over here. Uh, come on. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? This is the best idea I've ever heard. Well, you know that I'm all for both Ray Longo and Matt Sarah getting all of the screen time that they could ever possibly want from from their positions as MMA coaches. And I agree with you in theory that this would be an awesome move. Remember to breathe. Although if we're having a real discussion about it. On. I would point out again that as another guy who's a huge professional wrestling fan and a huge MMA fan. I kind of want to keep the two separate. Like, I don't think that, that the problem is that we don't have enough professional wrestling stuff in MMA and vice versa. I think the problem might be that we already have too much. I'm just saying, what if Ray Longo throws salt in somebody's eyes uh, and enables Chris Weidman to beat them? Then you got a great rematch. Hey, man, up. if this thing comes, if what we get out of this thing is Matt Sarah walking around with a tennis racket over his shoulder, <laughs> I'm 100% in. All right. Last question this week comes from Jamad de, de Ramos. Nailed it. Uh, he writes, so I'm pretty sure that I ran into Chris Sanford from season one of The Ultimate Fighter on Saturday in Oakland. He was standing right next to me in line at a store, and it took me a couple seconds, but I was about 99% sure it was him. I was just about to ha ask him, hey, aren't you Chris Sanford from The Ultimate Fighter? When I realized that that may not be the best thing to do. I mean, where does the conversation go from there? <laughs> Quote, yeah, you were that first guy to get eliminated without even getting a chance to fight. Then you came back on the finale and got smashed by Josh Koscheck and never made it back to the big show, right? So how's it been the last eight years? My question is, when you run into fighters of that sort, is it better to say something or just go home and email a podcast that you saw so-and-so? 
I don't know, going home and emailing the podcast seems like it worked out pretty well because here we are. Yeah. But also, wouldn't it have been awesome if he emailed the podcast to say he had a conversation with Chris Sanford and that where the conversation went was really awkward and uncomfortable for everybody? Yeah, see, I would think that Chris, Stan- Chris Sanford, even though I don't know him in any way, is probably dying to get recognized by some guy at the store. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> See, so like he's probably he would probably love it if some dude tried to talk to him about the Ultimate Fighter, uh, especially if that dude maybe made it a point to make it seem like he was sort of into Chris Sanford when he'd been on the Ultimate Fighter. Trivia question: Only two fighters from the uh, first season of the Ultimate Fighter do not have a Wikipedia page. Who's the other one? Uh, I'm gonna guess Jason Thacker. Boom! Is that right? Yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's kind of an easy one. Uh, the other thing that I would want to hear from Chris Sanford, which I think could have been an interesting way for this conversation to go, is to hear his take on the entire experience, because maybe he's really bitter, bitter about it, or maybe being a, at least a former fighter, perhaps he would say something to you like, oh man, in that Koscheck fight, I had him. Yeah. I had him right where I wanted him, and then it got away from me. A lot of people don't know I came in there with an injured knee. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So yeah, I guess we the answer have to the, the conversation for him. He doesn't right. have to do it. I guess the answer to the question is yes. Whenever you see uh, an old, possibly retired fighter, see what he's up to, man. Yeah, see maybe if, see maybe if he's he wants doing to go have a drink. Yeah, yeah, see if he wants to catch a burger. At you want to split a plate of nachos? I'm just spitballing here. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question for the podcast in future weeks, you can hit us up by going to the website cobainevent.com and clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, sometimes this sport just makes it hard to be reasonable, since after weeks of conspiracy theorists claiming that Anthony Pettis would somehow slip into the UFC 164 main event over TJ Grant, and lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. Son of a bitch. When Grant pulls out, citing a concussion suffered in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu training uh, late last week, uh... I guess before we go into any of the repercussions of this, we should probably re- reiterate again that no conspiracy here, no setup, no no fix, right? You don't sound like you believe it. Well, I, I'm, it's not that I don't believe it. I'm just saying it's 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 convenient. It's and it's getting it's getting harder to be the reasonable guy in this conversation <laughs> when shit like this happens. You know, this one. I was all set to, to jump on a conspiracy bandwagon on this one because it seems just a little too convenient, especially after Anthony Pettis reminded us that Milwaukee is his town. Uh, <laughs> but the the fact that TJ Grant's story is that he's out because of a concussion suffered in jiu-jitsu training, that's too weird, I yeah, think. So it's too crazy to make up, right? Yeah. If you were going to make something up, you would make up something that was – not as easily like impunable because people would just say like, wait, you'd be, so you're the first person to ever pull out of a title fight because he suffered a concussion in training. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there have been fighters before who suffered concussions in training, didn't tell anyone about it, um, kept pushing through it, you know, probably not the best idea, but it is one of those things where it's the thing that seems weird is that he decided to tell the UFC about it this far out from the fight, more than a month out from the fight and say, 
I have a concussion. I'm not going to be able to train the way I want to. I'm not going to be ready for that fight. Because a lot of people, I think, would have just kept quiet about it and shown up in, in the best situation that they could have. Yeah, to me, the like uh, umbrella overarching reason why you just can't slip into conspiracy theory about this kind of stuff, even though it seems seductive and convenient to do so. So seductive. Is that the UFC would be really, really stupid if they were doing stuff like this. If they were like thinking that they could go behind the public's back and either engineer fight matchups or as we sometimes see and as we did just saw with the Anderson Silva Chris Weidman fight like fixing fights which is far far and away the more outlandish claim that people often make like it would be so dumb for the UFC to try to do that number one because there's no way that they could keep it quiet no that's the thing this sport leaks like a goddamn sieve like somebody in TJ Grant's camp would tell his girlfriend who would tell her hairstylist who would tell somebody else's uncle who would call some guy who works for cage potato and (laughs) then next thing you know it would be on the internet well and not only that like you wouldn't even need it to go through all that because who are you relying upon to be your your partner in this secret conspiracy uh, a pro fighter because what are the odds that things don't go his way in a couple years uh he's out of the UFC and he or he gets mad at the UFC for something and this is the first thing he's going to bring up is hey back in uh 2013 year of the super fight uh the UFC paid me to pull out of a, a title fight which is really mine when I had no reason to pull out of it uh and they either paid me or coerced me or threatened me or something I mean the, he would come out with that at some point you know the odds that like you would just stay on a good enough relationship with him to secure that secrecy are just not that good and the UFC knows fighters well enough to know that right. you don't want them as the ones like standing between you and a huge controversy uh, so I mean okay not the the conspiracy th- stuff on TJ Grant's side out the window however I do recall Dana White sitting there in Winnipeg and saying like he had to talk Anthony Pettis down by saying look dude you're not going to be ready to fight in Milwaukee I don't care what this physical therapist you went to said we're sending you to our doctor you're not going to be ready to fight so quit bothering me about it and now a few weeks later Anthony Pettis is in that fight is he still uh, is Dana White still worried about his readiness is this a situation where we're like well we lost TJ Grant all right Anthony Pettis, you say you're ready. We still have doubts, but fuck it. We need a fight. See, that strikes me as one of those interesting questions that a, that an intrepid journalist could ask during a, a conference call type situation and maybe get someone to slip up and, and tell you that Anthony Pettis is coming into this fight on one leg. Do you think? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll happen. That is interesting, though. I had forgotten that that There's happened. There's some link bait so, right there. So, uh, so I'm glad that you brought that up. I, to me, the, 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 the real shame about this... Uh, and another reason why I don't think it makes a ton of sense for people to believe that the UFC did it on purpose was that I was super excited for TJ Grant versus Ben Henderson. I Me thought that was going to be a hell of a fight. Yes. And I was also excited for the idea that maybe we would get Anthony Pettis fighting the winner of TJ Grant, Ben Henderson, which if that had been the way that it had played out would also make for an incredibly exciting fight and a fight that I would be incredibly excited to watch. And for me, for it to get made like this in sort of like a one or the other type situation, it really kind of like undermines my excitement for this fight, which is a bummer because I really want to see it. But at the same time, I can't escape this sort of like nagging feeling. Oh man, I really actually wanted to see TJ Grant in this fight. So that to me, just as from a, a fan's point of view, is kind of a bummer. You'll forget that. You'll forget that by the time the fight happens. Maybe. You will forget this conversation 20 minutes from now. Well, that's true. Yeah. So I don't think that that, I mean, cause I understand what you're saying too. Cause you, you, the Anthony Pettis 
Benson Henderson pairing feels like a big enough deal, especially after the the Showtime kick and the way the last one went to, to end the old WEC. But I, I feel like the real concern there is not that like the way the fight got made is going to make us less enthusiastic for it, but that if we're bringing in Anthony Pettis when he is not in best physical form because of his injury to replace TJ Grant, who is out because of an injury. If, if we're making this fight on a timeline that you normally wouldn't make it just for the sake of convenience, then you might not get the real, you, you might not get the best possible fight out of it. Cause I feel like that is, you know, it's a huge fight uh, that you can really push in a million different ways. You just show that showtime kick over and over again. I mean, you can get people excited for that fight, but if you get them excited for it and then we show up and Anthony Pettis has one leg, you know, that, that, all he needs is one leg. He just jump off the cage and bang right in the face. Yeah, yeah, that's in true. In the face. That's a good point. Right in the face. Uh, but I mean, that's that's my main concern. Uh, but like you, I mean, I really did want to see T.J. Grant in that fight. I guess it makes me wonder too. Like, is T.J. Grant the most reasonable fighter out there for realizing I got a concussion? I can't train. If I can't train, then I can't take this fight. I'll sacrifice the the short term possible gain uh for you know better long-term odds yeah he certainly seems to be taking it well except for shouting down the conspiracy theorists right away which i think indicates that your sport is in a weird place where that's the first thing that you have to do but yeah i mean you i guess for tj grant you hope that things work out for him to face the winner uh because not only has he been extremely reasonable about this this happenstance he's also been pretty goddamn stellar since dropping to lightweight i think back in 2011 um but at the same time as history dictates you can never tell with these things uh, uh you know you don't as we've learned from previous Benson Henderson fights like Ben Henderson could pretty much lose any any fight at any time yeah. if he continues to fight the way that he has in his last couple of title defenses so you don't know if 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 Pettis is going to win and it'll set the division off on some completely different uh, track or the timing's just not going to line up or somebody else gets hurt. Um, history has shown us that when a dude is forced to bow out of a title fight, he doesn't always get that title fight later. And I hope no. that, that doesn't happen to TJ Grant because I think that would be a shame. You know, one of the things I wondered about was if you're Benson Henderson and you know you have that style of fighting where you're relying on winning rounds and, and winning these really close decisions – uh, and I guess he already did it against Gilbert Melendez, but I wouldn't feel too great about trying that style in the other guy's hometown. Um, just because, you know, the crowd gets behind that guy and that stuff, when it's that close, can influence the judges that, that can make them think like, okay, the, I heard all the cheers when this guy was landing punches. So even if I was at an angle where I couldn't really see it, I have to assume that that punch landed. I mean, I feel like if it's that close, something like that can tip it. Uh, again, he beat Gilbert Melendez in San Jose, but, if, you know, Anthony Pettis in Milwaukee might be a different situation. Maybe, who knows, it'll force Benson Henderson to go after it a little more and try and put a little more distance between he and the guy he's fighting. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe Benson Henderson has at least intimated in the past that during their first fight, he fought with a strategy that he, in retrospect, did not think was was maybe the best way for him to go about it because I think that he said it was the... It, because it was the last fight ever in WEC history, he wanted to to put on a show and 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 have people remember the fight and send the WEC off in 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 proper in a proper way. Obviously, it turned out that the fight was remembered for reasons that Ben Henderson probably doesn't appreciate that and, much. And since then, he's been doing usually the opposite of putting on a show, right. but has been winning. 
Yeah, so you wonder how he's going to come into this fight game plan wise. I know there's been some sort of uh, like psychological uh, gamesmanship from uh, Duke Rufus. Uh, I remember during the last Ben Henderson fight that that uh, Duke Rufus tweeted out that he knew the secret of how to beat Ben Henderson, but uh, we wouldn't find out until one of his guys got in the cage with him. And then earlier today, as we record this, I saw Anthony Pettis wanted to make sure that he came out and warned Ben Henderson that he would not be the same guy that Ben Henderson faced a couple of years ago, which I assume is probably true for both fighters. Yeah. But uh, the, there's just been some some back and forth, I guess you would say, in the media about how this one is going to go. And and if if there's one fight that Henderson wants back, you got to believe it's that first yeah. meeting with Anthony Pettis. So no telling how this one shapes up once they actually get in there. Secret to beating him, kicking him in the face. Preferably by jumping off the cage yeah. first. That and uh, tickling. Oh. Really, really can't stand to be tickled. Anyway, uh, Ben, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will we'll move on to round number two. What, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me? goes out to former UFC heavyweight champion Tim Sylvia. Oh, he deserves this. Yeah. He deserves this one. As you may have seen on Twitter, after the verdict was hand- handed down in the George Zimmerman trial, uh, and George Zimmerman was found not guilty, Tim Sylvia tweeted, I don't remember this much uproar, two separate words, uh, when OJ got away with what he did. You fucking kidding me, Tim Sylvia? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Is that all you're going to say? It feels like you're letting Tim Sylvia off a little bit easy. Considering what else? The other things he did, like retweet uh, uh, Ted Nugent, who the appeared, Nuge. appeared yeah. happy, appeared, appeared happy about the verdict. Yeah. Uh, oh, and uh, tweeting out, oh, shit, not guilty. Now here comes the riots. Uh, by the way, how, how many cities have been damaged by those riots as of the recording of this podcast? Well, in Maine alone, I don't know. Yeah. Which I'm sure is I imagine that it's close close to home for the, the Maine. The, the epicenter of the, the race riots, I'm sure, was Maine. <laughs> ben, Come on, this, Tim Sylvia, fucking kidding me. Are you fucking kidding me? Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me pretty much has to go out to American recording artist Usher Raymond for his <laughs> appearance in Anderson Silva's post UFC 162 video blog. I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but tons of dudes messaged us about it, and I caved to the pressure and watched it. And there's a portion of it where it seems like Usher can be seen, I don't know, maybe like counseling Anderson Silva about how to get over his loss to Chris Weidman, and also maybe subtly reprimanding Silva for fighting the way that he did. If you have not seen it, I recommend it just for the pure, like, painful, awkward embarrassment of it all. And, hey, Usher, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? You know, after a breakup, then I want Usher to to console me. Exactly, but not when you break up with the UFC middleweight title. No, not really his field of expertise. Also, to Anderson Silva, thank you for not somehow slapping the shit out of Usher after UFC 162. He is a national treasure. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Last week, UFC middleweight Brian Stan announced that he's done, brother. No more MMA for this guy. 
Now, of course, he moves into full-time broadcaster mode with his deal with Fox and his deal to announce ACC college football games for Fox Sports South, leaving MMA behind while his brain is still intact. And that turns out to have been a big part of uh, the motivating factors for him in announcing his retirement now at age 32. I can't remember a retirement that I thought the dude did it for the better reasons and handled it better than this one right here. Yeah, it was it was sort of handled with the kind of shocking uh honesty and good timing and uh articulate uh delivery that I guess we've come to expect from Brian Stan throughout his uh mixed martial arts career and I I agree with you uh that it f- it felt right. It felt like he went out at the right time and uh you know made the decision for the right reasons and I and I think should be commended for uh, the reasons that he publicly gave for uh, wanting to to hang up his gloves, so to speak, and I guess also for having the good sense to uh, to walk away when it was time, because as we all know, that's a that's a trick that is easier imagined than actually done in this sport. Almost no one uh, walks away at the correct time. Almost everyone sticks around way too long. And, uh, I guess it's not surprising that Brian Stan would be different than everybody else, but also I think, uh, real positive that he was able to, to make the call and walk away in, in a way that I think befits his, his overall character. Yeah. And you know, the thing was, I, cause I remember talking to him like a year or two years ago, something like that. And, uh, he was saying how he did not want to be that guy who hangs around for fun fights uh, to get paychecks, to get fight of the night bonuses and, and stuff like that. That if he got to a point where he didn't feel like he was working towards a title, that he would quit. That he's not going to just just hang around just to be there. Um, and then when he fought Vanderlei Silva, and it was an awesome fight. And, you know, he lost and he said that that one knocked him further down from where he would need to get to, to fight for a title. And he realized that the time and the energy and the time away from his family he would have to put in in serious training camps uh, in order to get back there um, that, you know, he wasn't willing to do it. It was going to take too long and it was going to require too much of a sacrifice for him and he still might not get there. That all seems like this really rational thought process that we just, I guess, assume at this point that most fighters aren't capable of. And one of the things he was saying was that he he told me when I talked to him on the phone uh, about it last week that uh, he mentioned when I was in Vegas and I talked to him some, he mentioned some that, you know, I think I might be done. And I said, well, hey, if you really decide you want to do that, then let me know. I'd love to write that story. And he said he was kind of waiting for the, the ACC thing uh, to become official. And then when it was, then he wanted to talk about it. And when we talked, he said that after the Vanderlei fight, he read something uh, where where I had written something like, hey, this is exactly the kind of fight Brian Stan said he wasn't going to hang around to take. These fun fight of the night things that ultimately really get you nowhere. And he was saying at the time he was already had already made up in his mind, well, that's right. I'm not going to continue to take those. I am done. And usually when you hear that from a guy, you're always, your first thought is always like, yeah, you say that now and then they'll offer you another one and you'll come back and then, you know, maybe one or two more down the road, you'll start to get serious about it. And here's a guy who it seems like when he makes that decision is able to just be like, all right, that's it right there and cut it off clean. And that, I mean, I think just as a human being, that's a kind of a, a remarkable trait to have. It sounds to me like you just took credit for Brian Stan's retirement. Did that? Did that just happen? <laughs> yeah. No. I I called him up. I was like, "Look, Brian, I got you this job at the ACC. 
Uh, no, he wow. was saying that by the Some time breaking news here on the co-main event podcast. <laughs> wow, is that our breaking news music? This is my breaking news music. Man, all the music submissions we got, we can't get anything for <laughs> breaking news. Well, maybe for next week. He was saying though that by the time he read that, he had already made up his mind to retire. That he was sticking with it. That that was exactly the kind of fight he was not going to stick around and take. The thing I think that it's it's kind of funny about the whole thing is. Here's a guy saying he's retiring because, at least in part, he's worried about what this sport might and you know, his years of football and, and military service and all that stuff, all the knocks in the head he's taken. He's worried about what it might do to his brain, um, which it seems like the guy who is smart enough and, and reasonable enough to worry about that at this point is the guy whose brain must be pretty okay. It's the guys yeah, at least who's, now, at least for now. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. You don't want to stick around, he said, until something bad had already happened. It's the guys who, like, their brains are not capable of making that connection, who are the ones that are most likely to stick around until something bad happens to their brain, it seems. Yeah, and you know, there also is a certain percentage, I guess, of mixed martial arts fan out there that it seems like is always going to react negatively to every story. And in a weird way seems to react more negatively to positive stories than they would for stories that that actually deserve some uh, critical questions to be asked. Um, and I saw a certain amount of people online sort of missing the point about the Brian Stan uh, retirement because uh, the point here is not really that Brian Stan got another job or that he was able to get another job. I think that the point here is is more that Stan looked at his fighting career and made the call that the sacrifices that he was going to have to continue to make in order to go on fighting really outweighed the rewards that he was likely to reap. Uh, and I feel like that's something that that all fighters need to be mindful of. And yeah, I saw it pointed out that that Stan is something of a special case in fighting because he's weirdly articulate and, and kind of like shockingly thoughtful. Uh, and I did see that brought up a couple of places. Um, and, you know, that the, the idea that he has options that other fighters don't have. And while that's true, not everyone can be a broadcaster. I think that the important thing to keep in mind and keep in perspective for the Brian Stan retirement is that everybody needs to have an exit strategy. Yeah, everybody, not just the guys who are super smart, like the guys who don't appear to have other options are the guys who need to come up with an exit strategy almost more than anyone else. Yeah, because you're not going to be doing this when you're 45. Well, and one of the things that he said when I talked to him was I asked him like, hey, if not for this broadcasting stuff, do you feel like uh, you'd still be fighting? And he said no, but he felt like if he if he had won that fight with Vanderlei, which was one of those fights where anybody could have won it you know you're both just standing there winging leather at each other so that one could have gone the other way very easily he said if he'd won that one that he probably would have kept going uh that it's when you take a loss and you realize you're even further from your goal uh and that you know when he's training at home in atlanta he doesn't have good enough coaching and training partners it's not the same as preparing for a fight out in in Albuquerque, but then where he has to be away from his family, that, you know, those kind of considerations all played into it more than just, hey, I have another job that I can go do. Uh, right. And I've seen a lot of people, I think, really overvalue the uh, the the position of rookie uh, color commentator on a Fox Sports regional ACC broadcast. Yeah. Like, I guarantee you that Brian Stan is taking a pay cut 
to uh, to continue on in his life just as a a broadcaster on these regional football games and probably a broadcaster on the uh, on the UFC broadcast. And then I, you probably throw in also the money that that I'm sure he draws a salary for being for heading up his nonprofit organization yeah. uh, that he does. But, you know, this isn't a case where Brian Stan got a better offer. I don't think I think he got a better offer for his brain. I don't think he got a better offer for his pocketbook because, you know, you look at just what he made in the UFC last year. Uh, and he's certainly not a big time main event guy who's going to be getting, uh, you know, pay-per-view money. But at the same time, he made $150,000 fighting for the UFC during 2012. Uh, you know, that's his reported money. And part of that is, is one, I think, fight of the night bonus that he got. But like he was being... He was he was being paid, you know, as as probably in the in the upper echelon of sort of like mid range talents in the UFC. So it's not like I don't think that this decision was made motivated by money. I think he was being honest with us. I think that it was a decision motivated on uh, uh, on his desire to continue being uh, the kind of guy who can mentally be a good father and and family man. Yeah, and you know that's the thing too is that. Uh, where he said that when he when he told Dana White that he had made this decision, that his remark was, you know, I don't think I'm feeling any effects from all this stuff, but the time to stop is not when you start feeling the effects, which is totally true, and which is one of the things that I think we miss sometimes, or that people will hold up about some fighter and say, well, hey, look, this guy, he's in his late 30s, and he's been fighting, and, and he seems fine. It's not when he's in his late 30s that I'm worried about him, necessarily. It's when he gets to be in his 40s and 50s, and that stuff starts catching up with him. That's usually when we start to see the effects of that, and I mean... The way, like, the brain stuff works, the way, like, CTE, that all that stuff works, you could have it now and not know it. I mean, Brian Stan could be, you know, this articulate, sharp guy, and it might not catch up with him for, you know, another decade or so. You, you don't know, and that's kind of one of the things that he was saying is that, you know, with CTE, you can't go get, like, an MRI or something and have them look in your brain and tell you if you have it. The only way to know for sure if you have it is them cutting open your brain after you're dead. Uh, so, I mean... It also, though, made me wonder when a guy retires from the sport at 32 and kind of the general reaction is, good for him, way to get out of there. You know, it's like, what does that tell us about this sport <laughs> when as soon as somebody who we like that's in it says that they're going to get out, it's like when you're watching a like a mob movie and you always want, you know, you wonder why the the mobster doesn't just like take a suitcase full of money and get out of there since the net is closing around him. You know, if if we think of it as something where your your goal as an athlete is to make a little bit of money, get get position yourself for the next thing and then get out of there, what are we saying about this sport that you know, even we realize it is so dangerous that nobody should stick around. Yeah, I mean, I think it it probably tells us that the window in this sport can and probably should be very short. I think that's actually one of the reasons why, you know, fighter pay should be an issue of concern. And one that we bring up a lot is that we shouldn't really be asking these guys to make professional fighting their life's work, just philosophically speaking, and not to get drawn into a discussion about the financial realities of the MMA industry. But, you know, guys who compete for the largest MMA company in the world should be able to get in there, compete for five or six years and emerge on the other side of that significantly better off financially than when they started. And, you know, they should at least have enough money to invest or parlay into the next stage of their lives, I guess. And how many do that? Not very many. It, it, it seems like, uh, you know, above and beyond just the Brian Stan example that, that, 
you know, guys should have the freedom to do this. You know, guys sh- should have made enough money by the time they reach the, the Brian Stan stage of their career that they don't have to stick around simply out of necessity. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely not happening. I mean, if you talk to those guys, I don't think that there's a whole lot of guys who are in that kind of mid-level guys who are not champions and have not been making that kind of like the championship points on the pay-per-view money. There's not many of them who I think feel like just financially that they've set themselves up into a, a good situation uh, to move forward. It's not even because of bad business decisions. It's not like, you know, the NFL players telling stories about how they managed to blow millions and millions of dollars. It's just because you're not making that much to begin with and you have to invest a lot in your own training and your own preparation. That is all coming out of your pocket. You know, so I don't know. And that's also, though, one of the things that when we talk about fighter pay, some of the concerns, the, the ancillary concerns that come with that are that low fighter pay encourages guys to stick around forever because they don't have enough money to leave when they want to or leave when they should. Uh, and also, if people are going to start in with fixed conspiracies, low fighter pay makes it a lot more likely that somebody will eventually decide to, to get paid in some other way if they're unhappy with their official compensation. Yeah, well, good for Brian Stan. I feel like he made the right choice and got out at the right time, and and uh, hopefully nothing but good things for that guy uh, for the rest of his days because I feel like he deserves it. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back momentarily with round number three. back so says anderson silva during one of the more awkward 23 second long videos you're ever going to see i'm back and with that the rematch against chris weidman that he at first said that he didn't want is officially signed and on for ufc 168 on december 28th at the mgm garden arena in las vegas ben what the hell do you think it means when anderson silva silva says he back well, I thought that this was still the period in which he was supposed to be helaxing. Isn't that what he said? Well, it seems like it, maybe the, the period of, of helaxing was truncated in some way. Possibly was, because he figured out how much money he was going to make fighting Chris Weidman in the rematch. What I remember hearing was he will not fight for the belt anymore. Chris is the champion now and deserves all that respect. And uh, that he will continue to fight. Not He's done fighting for the belt and he was going to go home and helax. And then here we are, boom, turn right around, and he back. Yeah, but I think we've learned from the past that 99.9% of the shit that is said in cage after a fight is bullshit. Uh, I think that this is probably one of those situations. Well, yeah, where- and I think we automatically assume that it was bullshit. But I think there ought to be a, a, a grace period that, you're, that you have to stick to, like at least two weeks or something, before you can go back on what you said in the cage. Like I see, that's probably a pretty solid... Uh, solid idea we won't hold you to it forever but like know that whatever you say you'll be expected to abide by for two weeks so like if you get in there and you lose that fight and you're like you know this this has really made me think about a lot of things i'm marrying my girlfriend i'm doing this like you know for two weeks we will expect you to act like you're really marrying her you know after that two weeks goes up then you can be like actually when i said marrying i meant moving out i'm moving out uh and taken up with a bunch of hookers I just met. Fine. But those two weeks, you got to stick to it. Well, yeah. And I think you bring up an interesting point that the 
a sort of immediate nature of the turnaround on this calls into question what the hell he means when he says he back because he was never gone really <laughs> we saw him two weeks ago man like so I, I mean is he trying to intimate to us that he's not gonna gonna behave like a moron in the cage against chris wyman during fight number two is no he's he, he's gonna do that he said he's gonna do that still did he already say that yeah yeah i think he said that, that he didn't feel that it was disrespectful and that he feels that that's you know part of his game and everything that he's still gonna do that stuff well, that's good to know. Yeah. I mean, one of the points that I was going to bring up was it wouldn't really surprise me if, if Anderson Silva came out and fought the second fight against Chris Weidman the exact same way that he fought the first fight against Chris Weidman because I think we've learned uh, from seeing him uh, over the years in his UFC career that he is not a normal person yes. and that he uh, he very is very much capable of, of going out there to attempt to fight Chris Weidman in the same exact way that he did the first time just to prove a point or who knows, maybe because he just wants to, that's what he's into right then, you know, <laughs> Spider-Man comics and hanging his chin out there. Like it has a big target on it. Yeah. You know, I mean, in one way, I kind of wondered if this is not just like a bad idea to do this, such a quick turnaround and make this announcement because then it leaves such a long time between now and when the fight is expected to happen. It feels like if you just, even if you wait like a month after the fight, um, let us at least toy with and become terrified by the idea that maybe Anderson Silva, uh, really will be done fighting for the title after that. Then when you come back, it feels not so much like, an immediate reversal of what you said, but like you actually did take the time to think about it. You did some kind of rocky soul searching montage where like you walked on the beach and you went and like and looked at your old photographs on the wall in the gym and you like and a, Ed Soares rode bikes together. Yeah. On a mountain pass overlooking a beautiful waterway. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you you went through all this like kind of soul searching stuff and then you know, there was that moment where you sat straight up in bed and said out loud, I back, you know, and like, it feels a little bit more dramatic that way. If you're just like, oh, wait, that stuff I just said didn't mean it back now fights in six months. Yeah. And it also, you know, waiting a little while maybe may have been a little bit more successful in convincing the public and also Chris Weidman that you as the UFC were in any way interested in having him as your UFC middleweight champion. Because I feel like the immediate nature of this rematch signing really hammers home the message, hey, Chris, we ain't buying it. You know, <laughs> we're going to have to see you do it again, brother. Make the uh, the prove it shot, so to speak. Uh, if this were a game of horse, uh, regardless of the fact that that's not how they played a horse where you grew up. No, that not is at all. how the rest of the world plays it. But see, wouldn't this be a great situation? Like, oh, we act like Chris Weidman is, is not legit. What do Ray Longo and Matt Sarah have to say about this? <laughs> this is where we could just have a, like a promo where Chris Weidman wouldn't have to say shit. He'd just stand there with his shirt off and his arms folded while Sarah and Longo just went to town. Yeah, see, I think the be best awesome. way to promote Chris Weidman is through still photos of him having the belt at the club. I feel like that is the most <laughs> uh, effective way to to establish his character, so to speak, with the with the MMA community. Because, frankly, I don't know how you're not into Chris Weidman after the fact once you see him uh, with the belt on his lap sitting in the VIP area of that club with his green club shirt on, tucked into his jeans, just basically doing the fawns and being like, hey. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Thanks for coming out. It also made me wonder 
when you're the guy who's about to go fight Anderson Silva, as you're folding the green club shirt and like putting it in the, the special place in your suitcase where it's not going to get wrinkled, like on top, are you just sort of praying to God, like, Jesus Christ, I hope I get to wear this. I hope I get to put this shirt on after the fight and go out to the club. I hope I'm not in a hospital somewhere. Yeah. Having my left cheekbone surgically reattached to my face. Yeah. You know, I always wonder, and I've talked to a couple of fighters about that very thing, like, do you, especially even guys who like Donald Cerrone, who your fighting style seems to indicate that a lot of times, even if you win, you might end up at the hospital and not in a situation to put your club shirt on. Uh, do you think about that beforehand? And they all say no. I mean, who knows if they're telling the truth there, but they seem like they're genuine. Like in order to be a successful fighter, part of the mental gymnastics you have to be able to do is to block out any possibility of consequences. Uh, and any possibility of what the next day might be like. Because otherwise, you probably would do something else if you were the kind of person like you or I who thought about that. Just fill the fill your bag up with ice packs. Yeah. That's what I would do. And hope you get one of those mini fridges. And you hope <laughs> the UFC sprung for a room that has a mini fridge in it. You know what I've learned? What's that? The nicer the hotel, the less likely it is to have a mini fridge. Is that true? Yeah. Because they want you to go downstairs and, and... I don't know. I think they feel like it's not classy enough or something. The ones that are like the kind of kind of shitty hotel... Those are the ones that are going to have a mini fridge because they know that your dirtbag is going to put a six-pack of Ducati in there. Hmm. Interesting point. Yeah. I'm telling you, test that that theory out, people, as you travel across the land. Well, Ben, at this point, the rematch is signed. We know when and where it's going to be. It's not going to be in Cowboy Stadium, as we were briefly uh, teased that it might be. Well, we uh, better keep asking Dana White when they're going to go there, though. I do. One of the burning questions in my mind is when they're going to go back to Dallas. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good idea that we keep asking him that. Silva has opened as something approaching a two-to-one favorite in the rematch. Uh, yet, I guess, more evidence that nobody's buying the Chris Weidman victory. Um, clearly, a second fight could be completely different. You know, we wondered about how the first fight would affect Weidman's psyche since he came in with comparatively little experience. A second fight, I guess, uh, you know, no doubt will affect him in completely different ways. On one hand, maybe it's easier because he's already been in there with Anderson Silva, uh, kind of saw what he had to offer and then knocked him the fuck out. On the other hand, though, now he comes in there with the mental pressure of having to do it again, brother, uh, and also the pressure of now being the champion and, I guess, being dogged by this prevalent suggestion that uh, your first win was a fluke. Is is that the kind of thing that you think could... Uh, impair Weidman, I guess, go moving into the second fight. No, I'd say, if anything, that's uh, the best-case scenario for him as far as, like, the swirling storylines going into it. Uh, you, the w- danger would be if you, you knocked the dude out and then assumed, like, you know, that the rematch is just going to be a, a goddamn cakewalk for you and you go in there not fully prepared for, you know, everything Anderson Silva could do. I think the best-case situation for him is if, People are still doubting him. He's still the underdog. Uh, people are saying that it was a fluke. That, I think, would help him keep that same fire that he had coming into it to want to prove Anderson Silva wrong. Uh, and this time, you know, maybe he has learned something about wearing the suitcase to pack the club shirt because he's been there before. Yeah, you, you've kind of folded and put it in that special clip thing that goes on top, right? So yeah. So it kind of folds in on itself. Yeah. And, you know, and you don't want it, like, I just saw it to be, this goes without saying, but you don't want it near your shoes or anything like that. I mean, come on. Right. Well, that's, that's a rookie mistake. That's day one stuff. And what about for Anderson Silva? You mentioned 
earlier in this round, the, the, the protracted delay between the announcement of the fight and the actual fight, by the time we get Anderson Silva in the cage again to rematch with Chris Weidman, dude is going to be about four months shy of his 39th birthday. Uh, he will have, have had some sparing in cage action wherein he barely did anything and then got knocked out. What, what, d- despite his claims that he back, like what can we realis- realistically expect to see out of him in this rematch? Do we expect him to be this sort of like mind blowing matrix character that we've seen from him in the past? Or did this loss to, to Chris Weidman kind of officially begin the decline well i think that's one of the things that makes this fight so fascinating right is because i could see a lot of different anderson silvas showing up who knows maybe he shows up and he looks like he got a hell of a lot older in that time maybe he looks up shows up and and looks like he's ready to get serious about this shit uh maybe he feels like he's got to go in there and prove that he can fuck around and still win you know you don't know you don't know what's for all we know Two weeks from now, he can decide he no back anymore, and that he will no longer fight for the belt. He's just going to relax. Like we don't no, know, man. I saw the twenty three second long video. This is a done deal. You can't <laughs> once you publish the video. There's no way you can you can back out of it at that point. Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, and you know, you, with something like this, you also everybody like the the cynic in all of us says like, well, he realized how much money was to be made in a rematch, um, and so that's what prompted the just immediate turnaround. Uh, and I would hope that that's not the only thing. Obviously, that's going to be a consideration. I'd hope that that's not the only thing driving him. You'd hope that he actually does have that motivation to go back there and, and be champion again. Um, cause it didn't seem like it immediately after that fight. So I don't, I mean, that still, I think, remains a, a question mark for me. Cause if you, if you're doing this at, at this point, if you're Anderson Silva just for the money, uh, that might not be good enough against a guy like Chris Weidman, especially as you close in on your 40th birthday. Yeah, uh, hopefully recapturing his reputation has something to do with it. Yeah, and it's shutting up that that Ray Longo and that meddling Matt Sarah. <laughs> I was sticking their fingers through the cage trying to grab you, and the refs not looking. Just walking around the octagon with their bullhorns, handing Chris Wyman a pair of brass knuckles. All right, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and uh, and then we'll get out of here, Ben. This week, I'm just saying. I guess you got to take your hat off to George St. Pierre this week for challenging Johnny Hendricks to join him in an independently administered uh, voluntary drug testing program leading up to their fight uh, for the welterweight title at UFC 167. And frankly, good on Johnny Hendricks for enthusiastically taking that offer and saying, hell yeah, man, let's do it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so now uh, when we get this fight, I guess we can be pretty certain that nobody is on the juice. And now... If we could just get approximately 498 other fighters on the UFC roster to do the same thing, maybe we could move out from under the cloud of steroid suspicion that we feel like dogs are sport at every turn. I'm just saying. Just saying. But Chad, this week, I'm just saying, in light of Tim Sylvia's remarks and the the obvious news that, that came out of the end of the George Zimmerman trial, you know, at the risk of going political here on the the podcast i'm just saying that i think if you stick a gun in your waistband and you go stalking after somebody you don't know who's just walking through your neighborhood even after police dispatchers tell you to and you start a fight with that person and then you lose that fight and when you're losing you decide to pull out the gun and shoot them in the heart and kill them i'm just saying i think there ought to be a law against that
Huh, just saying, huh? I'm just saying. I don't think that should be legal to do that. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down the crazy happenings in the mixed martial arts world. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We're out. You know, the, the main tenant of my, of my personal uh, martial arts system, Dundasa, is always keep a gun with you. Carry yeah. a gun with you everywhere you go. So... Dundasso is mainly firepower based. That's right. Yeah, the guy who shows up.